0: I am now pleased to introduce Ryan Hines, who will be moderating our panel discussion. Ryan.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Yinka, and uh, thank you, Gigi, for that powerful presentation. Um, can't tell you how, how how important that was to hear those words from you. Um, and so my name is Ryan Hines. I'm the director of equity, diversity, and inclusion at Don Lawn School of Public Health, and I'll have the pleasure of moderating today's discussion. So. We've got just a phenomenal panel ahead of us uh, that we're all excited to hear really as much as we can from them. So I won't spend too much time doing introductions today. I think you know, we could do that all morning and still not do them justice. Uh, so plus, if you're here, you you, know, you likely know who they are already. Uh, and I'm sure everyone's Google skills are uh, exceptional at this point. Um, but one thing I will say is something that I think we know but is a good reminder just to sort of set the tone for today's discussion. You know, as we listen and we hear this rich discussion ahead of us, let's not forget that what we're after isn't sort of the good feeling from listening to these types of discussions. Let the discussion not not satiate our desire to do and act, right? Uh, We we sometimes run the risk of missing what these discussions are really meant to do, which is inspire action. So as we listen, uh, let's listen with an ear to action um, and leverage not just the inspiration, but the instructions that will come from these great panelists. Uh, and so without further ado, um, I want to introduce our f- first uh, panel, panelists, and ask her to join us. Um, Raini Shibustava. Thank
2: you. Thank you and good morning, everybody. So my task is to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in higher education. But before I do. I'm coming to you this morning from my home in beautiful Caneloops, BC, which is the traditional and unceded territory of the Takamloops, the Shukwetmik people within Shukwepmik Ulu. And I have this amazing opportunity to, and privilege really, I've been here for two years to live, work and play. And every morning the beauty and the healing power of the land continues to astound me and reminds me of the collective responsibility that we have to each other, to the community and to the the land that we live on. My task today is to share a few insights with respect to higher education. My vantage point is that of Dean School of Nursing for the past two years here in Kamloops and Thompson Rivers University, but supporting undergraduate, graduate students and nurse leaders in both formal and informal ways for the past 30 years, being a racialized minority nurse and a leader in healthcare. We know there are many challenges with our system, and we will talk about many here today. There are, however, some causes for optimism and positive stories, and if we can take those stories, the pilot projects, the initiatives, the great ideas, and convert them into some guideposts for sustainable change, that will be our legacy for the next generation and beyond. So given the time and the richness of the panel, I have chosen to focus on three key areas that in my experience shape the career and impact of health leaders, whether that be in education, practice, research, or policy, access, experience, and some of the opportunities that exist in mentorship and sponsorship. I am sure these are not new to anyone here. They are worth repeating, however, because there's still a knowing to doing gap. The journey to healthcare leadership starts, or stops for that matter, from the initial education. Although there are opportunities along the way to mitigate, it is harder. I will touch upon each point briefly, and more importantly, highlight some interconnections. And I suspect these themes will resonate in many of our conversations with other panelists. Access. Again, we know that access to healthcare education is not the same for everybody. There are many barriers every step of the way for many of our colleagues. If one starts at the very beginning, which is the entry into a career in the health sector, the good news is that healthcare careers are in high demand. However, the admission processes often privilege the student who has support and networks. If you have to work, look after family, or otherwise navigate adversity, all of these are compromised, your GPA, your references, the extracurricular activities, and the many other things we look for in trying to choose who we believe will make a worthy healthcare professional. In nursing, our undergraduate programs often reflect a diverse student body. However, when it comes to graduate school, it's a very different story. Access. Is further influenced by the undergraduate experience. Did you get the experiences, the marks, and the accolades you deserved, or did you have to navigate both conscious and unconscious bias from peers, faculty, and the clinical preceptors that compromised that? What did you that do to your desire for and a decent shot at further education for a career as a healthcare leader? or even an aspiration as a healthcare reader. The good news is that with the right supports, we can start to change that. But we have to do more than just support people. We have to examine our criteria and processes and recognize the barriers that exist within our system and the strengths that are currently invisible in many of our candidates. When it comes to experience, and I've started to allude to that already, we forget that we are part of the healthcare system and it's the caring that often gets missed. I'd like to just share a brief story. Many years ago, I was engaged in a project that included conversations with a group of students on culture, race, and relationships. The group of 11 students was diverse and we met monthly. It took a couple of months to develop trust and in our third or fourth gathering, students started to share more of their experiences. Some felt relief that they could label their experience now as discrimination and racism. Others were angry at having to have that experience. But one of the most powerful statements came from a student who identified as white, middle-class, female, heterosexual, with very little exposure to diversity, at least in a way that she was aware in her own hometown, previous education and life in general. When it came time, she spoke with deep empathy and respect and humility and said something to the effect of, I have never experienced or thought about any of these issues before. They have not been on my radar. But today, as I listen to my colleagues and I see the distress and the difficulties, I realize that I, we have to learn and change. What do I need to do to be part of that change? I think this is a question that worth repeating many times for all of us. It is important to make the racism visible. And for those of us who are teachers to become learners and for those of us who are learners to really think about how we can have the courage and the vulnerability to share some of our ideas and become the teachers. And lastly, the opportunity or at least one of the opportunities For me, one of the most helpful things I have experienced for success in my career, and I have been able to pay back in some way, is support, mentorship, and sponsorship. It is important to know who has your back. We need that. Who can help you navigate the system, not just be there to listen? Who can point out the opportunities? Having people to guide you, but also champion and put you forward Using their own privilege is amazing. It isn't overly complicated, but it does require international intentionality, commitment, respect for the individuals, and a genuine understanding of how to be a good ally. For me, the commitment to change is personal, professional, at an organizational level, and as you're starting to hear the theme, at a systemic level. The key things I've highlighted that that involves is the unlearning and the commitment to actions. And with that, I will stop and say thank you. Merci, Shukriya, Mikvech, Kuksham.
1: Thank you so much, Rani, um, for bringing sort of the academic lens to it. Uh, I think that's really important and you've said some things there that we're we'll definitely gonna come back to within that discussion. So um, thank you again. Uh, I wanna take the opportunity now to introduce our our second panelist, um, Angela Robertson, over
3: to you. So first, let me just say appreciation and thank you for um, the invitation to be part of this important conversation. And as well, um, that it goes without saying that this is happening in the context of Black History Month and that we're also marking the seventh year of the United Nations General Assembly um, proclaimed the decade of um, International Decade for People of African Descent, 2015 to 2024, and that with that it is important for me to locate myself as an immigrant in this country from ancestors who came to the Caribbean and to these Americas through the transatlantic slave trade as stolen people to this stolen land, and that this fact over 500 years later remains true and thus compels me to be in solidarity with indigenous peoples' fight for land rights and sovereignty. That we also mark this Black History Month. I am also compelled to remind us, as stated by activist, author, scholar, and African-American, James Baldwin, when he states that history is not the past. It is the present. We carry our history with us. We are our history. This quote, I believe, spotlights the fact that when we seek to address racism, we cannot use refrain that this is the past, that history, this is history, this is not relevant today, but that we must do, everything we do must be rooted continually in awareness of how the past impacts the present and how the things we call history historically continues to manifest themselves in our everyday And you heard that most starkly from um, Dr. Osler. I have framed the title of my opening remarks here, Enough is Enough. It is our moral imperative to act in advancing equity. And I'd like to offer some comments about how we use our leadership roles to, to make good trouble necessary trouble. And that is a quote from um, John Lewis, um, African American civil rights activist, um, international human rights um, activist, um, who made the statement about the imperative and the role that we must take on in making good and necessary trouble in addressing long-standing structural inequality and how we as BIPOC leaders must resist the seduction of individualism, of exceptionalism, that limits the power and possibility of our collective work and leadership for just change. Since the pandemic was declared, we have also witnessed other injustices that left us alarmed, but also with a zeal for change. In 2020, as Dr. Oslad reminded us, We witnessed the murder of George Floyd by a police officer and the worldwide resistance of the Black Lives Matter movement that rose up in response. We saw the deaths in this country of black and indigenous people during police quote unquote wellness checks and while accessing services in our healthcare institutions. And Dr. Osler called the name of Joyce Eshiquan, a mom of 27 who died leaving seven children um, in September 2020, and who um, recorded the horrific experience of her um, racist treatment in our Canadian healthcare institutions, our places supposedly of care and health. And that these past months, we have see, we, we see and continue to see the discovery of hundreds of grave sites of Indigenous children on the grounds of former so-called residential schools, and not so long ago, we also saw the horrific terrorist attack that took the lives of four family members and orphaned a nine-year-old boy in London, Ontario. And this is the horrific Islamophobic attack. And we currently are seeing the so-called quote-unquote freedom convoys displaying symbols of hate and talking about returning Canada to that pre-pandemic normal. The state of normal for the folks I prioritize in my remarks, pre-pandemic and during this pandemic, held and continues to hold the sites of deep, structural and systemic inequality. And we do not wish for the return to this normal. What we wish for is a space where there can be address and redress to those sites of inequalities. Remember again, that history is not past but very present and it is our responsibility as leaders and workers in healthcare to act. We have talked, we have deliberated, we have debated the presence of racism long enough. So what must we do? I do not confess to have and having the definitive word on what we must do, but I do have some ideas that I will throw out to us and maybe we can take that up in the question and answer component. In COVID-19 response and recovery, I believe we must identify population-specific initiatives that address the health access and barriers faced by Black, Indigenous, and and people of color populations. This means implementing population-specific efforts to address the needs of many who have been historically and who have experienced historical and contemporary experiences of discrimination that has given rise to vaccine mistrust and hesitancy. In this pandemic, I have sat at many leadership planning tables and have heard leaders suggest that we cannot do this and what we cannot do because it will take too much time. That integrating equity strategies make the system inefficient and protract timelines when urgent action is needed. That we should start with the general population first, white people, and then we must do equity later and that we also need to be reasonable because we cannot boil the ocean in a crisis. I dare to suggest that addressing inequality must be simultaneously to the main agenda and the main strategies, if all that we do. And it cannot continue to be sequential. It must be embedded in our priority strategies. It must be the priority in our recovery efforts being an afterthought must be uprooted. And if it continues, BIPOC populations will continue to trail behind. We need to collect and report on race-based disaggregated data, and also embed that with the socio-demographic elements so we can see where the real sites of inequality exist, and then buttonhole our strategies as responsive. We must meaningfully engage BIPOC populations about what we want, what we need from the healthcare systems, and what accountability strategies we want put in place to measure and monitor improvements in outcomes. The people who are addressed, excluded, and marginalised know what they we need. We have. We have, I think often, we have refused to ask the question. We have listened in tepid ways. We have not been authentic in our engagements. Hence, we have not been deep in our listening and resulting solutions. And I'm not talking about patient advisories as the primary engagement vehicles. When people most marginalized are working multiple essential worker jobs without time for these structures of engagement. I believe we must tap the shoulders currently of BIPAC staff in our teams to ensure roles to lead that are being given out now must be um, anointed must be also included, um, must include BIPOC um, community members. One of the things that I keep saying is that the shoulders that are tapped now to lead COVID-related projects and to demonstrate leadership in this moment of crisis will be those who are poised to lead in the recovery. And I ask you, therefore, to look inside your organization who's to ask the question and to see whose shoulders have been tapped to lead in this moment, because these are the leaders, these are the folks who are being set up to lead in recovery. And if BIPOC members are not there, then the trajectory is clear about where we will and we will not be. I believe we must hire BIPOC staff in positions that are not only about diversity, equity and inclusion, you cannot convince me that, almost, that amongst all the black and indigenous peoples in this country that only less than five are qualified to lead and that only in 2021 did we see the first black woman appointed as CEO of an academic health sciences center, my sister to come, Jackie Schleifer-Taylor. According to Wendy Sukir, founder and academic director of the Diversity Institute of um, X University, formerly known as Ryerson, When we look at differences between sectors and within populations, it is pretty clear that the issue is not the pool or the lack of available talent, but recruitment strategies, processes, individual attitude, knowledge, and behavior that either advance or impede diverse representation. I have a cautionary note for leaders in this room in that BIPOC leaders who hire other BIPOC members to their teams are often accused or whispered about as practicing nepotism, often forced to publicly defend their hiring decisions to staff, boards, and networks, and additionally carry the weight of shielding their BIPOC staff who they have hired of the accusing gaze that question their knowledge and qualification. This is an invisible weight that BIPOC leaders carry. That this can lead some BIPOC leaders to closing the door behind them when they enter to ward off such racist accusation and suspicion. And others can also revel in being the only one and the affirmation by white institutions and networks as being exceptional and or so different from the others that the door is not open to let others in. This can be a seductive space that promotes individualism and the backhand of racism that mutes BIPOC leaders' ability to build networks to do as civil rights rights, um, activists have called for to lift as we climb. We need actions to address systemic discrimination and racism, particularly anti-Black anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism that is often embedded in the micro and macro levels in our organizations. And as leaders, I believe it is our responsibility to make risk and to take risks to make change. Let no moment before um, that that we need to ask ourselves and use our own location to make good trouble necessary trouble. I would say to you finally that we need a provincial Black health action plan to light a path forward. And there are a few of us in this room who are seeking to do that. I end with a quote again from James Baldwin. I think it's a poignant reminder about actions for change. And he states, and I echo in this moment, he asks, you've always told me it takes time. It has taken my father's time. It has taken my mother's time. It has taken my uncle's time, my brother's time, my sister's time. How much more time do you want for our progress and for your progress? Thank you deeply.
1: Thank you so much, Angela. Uh, Is anyone else ready to run through a wall? Is it just me? Okay. Um, Thank you so much, Angela. It's powerful as always. And it gets me more excited to introduce our next panelist, Um, Richard Jock. Thank you, and uh, good morning. Uh, Next slide,
4: please, uh, when you're ready. I'm um, Richard Jock. I'm from the Mohawk Nation at Akwesasne, and I'm currently serving as CEO of the First Nations Health Authority in BC, the first uh, province-wide indigenous uh, program of its type in Canada. I'm calling in from Squamish territory here in West Vancouver in our headquarters. I start with this slide. Um, Others have mentioned uh, the recent uh, revelation of unmarked graves in both Kamloops and last week in Williams Lake, an additional 93 uh, have been um, discovered by ground penetrating radar. And I think it's uh, really relevant to the discussion. Uh, As I noted last week that in the McLean's uh, power list, that this was seen as the number one um, uh, person, if you would, or influencer on and um, on, on in uh, Canadian society. And I think that this is uh, both an opportunity, but also um, a reminder that this follows on the Royal Commission findings, uh, which uh, took place, uh, the Royal Commission took place over 10 years a Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission that really documented the details of residential schools, but it takes really uh, understanding uh, the notion that uh, children uh, have been uh, uh, left in these unmarked graves to really uh, have uh, society begin uh, relating to this uh, powerful impact on Indigenous people. I would say the other uh, aspect of this is that it it also positions us in terms of it being a unique, and uh, I would say an important time to address racism. And I would say that uh, the In Plain Sight report that was recently done by Mary Ellen uh, Terpel uh, documented very clearly, uh, both individual and systemic racism and really showed it and documented it uh, in many ways and also showed that there's uh, less access to the health system, uh, which really um, clearly reflects this systemic racism. Our our partners, uh, the Health Directors Association have really clearly uh, made this statement that racism is really also a determinant of health uh, and and really is a, a needs to be looked at in those terms, if we're really going to look at improving health for indigenous people. So uh, I would say that uh, more than looking at racism as one element, I I do think looking at it differently is really important. The other aspect I would say is that uh, we are partnering right now, we're completing work on uh, health standard on cultural safety and humility for uh, health Uh, system organizations, uh, so that uh, not only uh, will we uh, look at uh, racism, but be able to measure how Indigenous racism is dealt with uh, from a systems point of view, but also from the point of view of how racism issues are handled within those systems. So there are seven domains in that, and really I would say it's important to reflect on Uh, the the need to measure uh, these elements if we're gonna make change in it. And to have these adopted as accreditation standards in BC is the start. And I would say that this is gonna be important that standards like this, if not the same standards are rolled out across the country. Uh, We also participate in uh, national work. Uh, So I think this is uh, really um, uh, the beginning of. Of really some of this key work. Another part of this conversation really is that um, from uh, from all of the work that we uh, we've heard about, uh, really it's very clear that uh, the residential schools are a, a tremendous factor. You can see all the schools in BC, and also uh, we've noted on our map uh, that there were also uh, uh, Indian hospitals uh, that were run that were also part of really a racist uh, system. And, um, and really um, uh, need to think about uh, that indigenous people just simply should not be treated the same as every other person, if we're expecting to make a difference. That indigenous people are affected by trauma from not only the residential schools, but also from missing murdered women day schools, day scholars, uh, and other aspects of trauma. So it's really important that uh, that there be um, training and development which enables providers to uh, equip uh, themselves in terms of dealing with trauma and dealing with indigenous people presenting in their institutions. The other aspect I think is important, uh, I, I think there was some good comments made about power imbalance. I would say our organization uh, really uh, focuses on partnership uh, as a way to uh, correct some of those power imbalances. And some of our best partners really engage with us in what we call creative disruption. So that we we really look at uh, ways to uh, Uh, make changes by really saying that the current system is not satisfactory and that we need to find ways to engage in this creative disruption so that these changes can occur and be uh, really uh, embedded into the system. I would say that part of the rollout with COVID, I think we we gained tremendous partnerships through this and as part of our uh, approach we needed to make sure that people in remote communities had access to acute care very quickly. So we've been able to make some gains in terms of how to improve the system. Uh, And I think that these are important gains and important partnerships, but I would say they're also uh, built on that notion uh, that indigenous people have their own institution to represent them in these functions. Uh, In BC, I just wanna share very briefly uh, that we have our own governance system, uh, one that's balanced and uh, make sure that indigenous leaders, uh, health, uh, health directors and people at the community level, as well as our overall board and organization are all part of a governance framework. And that we have reciprocal accountability with other levels of government. It's not just simply they provide funds, we report, it's uh, reciprocal accountability. I think this is important in terms of changing some of this power imbalance uh, and moving forward. But obviously, um, more uh, work needs to be done on that. I would say that there are also uh, ways going forward that will look at how to entrench uh, some of these elements in, t- in terms of legislation. And I would say the at the provincial level, we have a Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. Uh, we also have um, work being done on human rights, which will enable uh, better ways to uh, describe indigenous people and the rights to um, uh, complaints and complaint systems. Federally, there's the similar uh, UN Declaration Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act uh, and other um, um, uh, legislation, including a distinction-based indigenous health legislation uh, that will make it easier for First Nations groups to run their own systems. Uh, and I think going forward, uh, making sure that indigenous people are covered in long-term care and in long-term care legislation and receive uh, more than equitable services, uh, receive um, really um, what I would call substantive equality-based services as a way to achieve equity, uh, that investment is needed and it needs to be done in a certain way rather than uh, really agreeing to uh, taking whatever funds are available. I think in terms of changing uh, the power uh, imbalance question, really the key uh, phrase that, uh, that we follow is nothing for us without us. And we really uh, honor that and really carry that with us on our daily basis. I also think that uh, uh, all of the uh, necessities of COVID and all of the uh, developments uh, here in BC, uh, they also provide the opportunity for innovation. And I think that uh, it's really important to reflect on those opportunities. We've embarked on land-based healing models with the province where uh, now we have uh, services in about uh, 140 communities, which are taking people back to the land as part of their dealing with trauma and substance abuse. Uh, We also uh, have worked really hard to stand up virtual um, uh, physician care, uh, where previously uh, communities and individuals had no access to primary care. And uh, recently stood up a virtual substance abuse and psychiatry service, again, uh, which is leading to uh, greater levels of services that have been so clearly documented in the past. And I believe that technology uh, and um, and, uh, working uh, together, the approach to substantive equality really should be an opportunity to leapfrog ahead for indigenous people. And to me, part of that is that indigenous people have to have their own institutions uh, to to really expect uh, significant change and are just doing more of the same to me is the definition of insanity. So to me to do things different is important and that we take advantage of those opportunities uh, going forward. So uh, just want to conclude. Uh, by saying that uh, right now in most uh, jurisdictions, First Nations people are about 20 years behind the rest of the population, and that's not acceptable. Let's uh, find ways uh, to make that
1: progress, make those leapfrog steps forward. Thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. We appreciate you sharing and uh, expanding a bit on some of the Issues, but also some of the successes, and then some of the places where we still need to go. And, and we'll definitely come back to that within that within the panel discussion. So thank you again. I want to invite now Jackie Schlieffer-Taylor uh to, to, to join us um and share a few words. Uh Jackie, over to you.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Ryan. And I I just want to say that I'm honored and um and and, and emotional in joining this panel today. And I I think a lot about uh stolen people brought to these stolen lands. And I, I think, yes, Angela, it's very important that we make good and necessary trouble. In my um, remarks, I'd just like to uh, talk a little bit about my experience and the hopes that it will give context to the four key levers of change that I've committed to and my organization is committed to uh, going forward to address uh, systemic racism and health inequities. I wanted to um, just uh, say that I know that everyone has a personal reason for entering healthcare, and, and certainly mine was not to be the first uh, Black woman to lead an academic hospital. Um, we all have our reasons. I certainly had mine, which was my motivation to change the healthcare system and address the very things we're talking about today. So I wanna just share with you that in 1988, when I entered um, you know, my physical therapy program, I was the only person in that program that looked like me. And right up until probably very early 2000s, and as I progressed in my own leadership trajectory, I saw less and less people over time who sat at the tables that I have the privilege of sitting at now. And I just wanna explain something um, in case you're not sure about what happens, but if you um, are a black person and you're at a healthcare leadership meeting or a conference um, at any level, regional, provincial, national in particular, um, it's not unusual that you're the only black person in the room, but should you be fortunate to see one other Black leader in the room. There's one of three things that can happen in that circumstance. If if you're like me, you make a beeline for that person at the first opportunity, and you want to know everything you can about them. You're excited to see them. You want to share experiences. That's the first thing that can happen, and that person can beeline for you. The second thing that could happen is, as I'm making my beeline, I note. Um, and give that subtle black person nod that black people know. And it says, I see you, but sometimes that nod cannot be returned. And it's an awkward thing. You pass each other in that room that you we all used to be able to meet in. Um, and But more often than not, that person who didn't return the nod and the receptivity is actually someone who seeks me out after the meeting or quietly at the coffee break when we used to be able to be in the same spaces. And we'll whisper that thing I wanted to openly share in, in the greeting. And I've thought a lot about why that happens. And I've thought about a lot about the fact that since 1988, when I first entered as a student, um, change has been slow. And I've never aspired for a leadership role, but I've aspired and acquired an understanding that leadership is the fastest vehicle for change and influence. So I've asked myself, particularly in these past years, past five years or so, and certainly in these past two, have I been somehow complacent with the change with which we're trying to see systemic barriers and inequality decrease? And I think there are five factors that have contributed to the path I've chosen to have my own sphere of influence. One is as a a black woman, I've gotten very adept at compartmentalizing my experience as a black woman out in the world versus my experience as a black woman within the healthcare leadership realm. And I've thought about why I've done that. And it's, it's, it's truly as a protective mechanism and the fear that that experience of being called a name on the street, or accused of stealing something, or not being seen—it's um, a fear of that happening in the professional realm. And the, you know, it's not just that they happened elsewhere, but it, that would it would creep into this environment where you've striven to to make a difference. Um, I think it's the effort to avoid anything like that happening. So it's carrying the weight of not only did this happen to you when you weren't at work, but the fear that you have to protect and make everyone comfortable so that it doesn't happen at work. I think it's also a factor is just focusing on excellence and working very hard at the things I've worked at and then seeing the result not necessarily um, evident. And being able to be invisible, unseen, or unheard, or overlooked is it's a very um, cyclical experience that has you inadvertently perhaps lowering your expectations, not of yourself, but of the probability of leading in an impactful way. And, and when I think about thought about those things and those realities, I've committed myself as I've taken on this new accountability to four leader, levers that I will not compromise on. The first is um, that goals will not be to reduce or diminish systemic barriers, they will be to eliminate them. And I think if we don't set goals that are about the eradication of this circumstance that we've all lived with too long, we're not doing enough to signal um, the inappropriateness of our current state. The second commitment I've made is not to ask, how can we do this? It's to ask, what will it take to do this? And to be at every opportunity, reminding others of the consequences of not doing it. We were trained as healthcare providers and leaders to be very at the forefront, caring about the patient in front of us, and now the patient waiting at our door. But I'm equally and every day concerned about those individuals who do not make it to our doors because they seem unwelcoming or foreboding or their circumstances forbid it or prevent it. The third lever is I'm encouraging, not encouraging, I'm requiring the accountability not just to rest with me, but with every single person at and on Team LHSC, it's our collective accountability to shift this circumstance. And and lastly, this thing I'm doing that seems small in some way, but I've already seen some results, results is that I'm normalizing difference. I'm speaking about my own Blackness and my own Black experience and inviting others to speak about and share their othering experiences. That opens the door to people openly bringing their whole selves to work, talking about their mental health challenges, talking about their differing abilities, talking about their queerness, whatever it is, they would bring their whole selves to work. I would just end by saying that um, there are a lot of things that are hard, but the fifth thing that I've committed to is not perpetuating the belief that this is hard. Hard is never easy, but easy should not be this hard. And this should be easy work that we all commit to. And I believe strongly with that commitment, we can get there.
1: Thank you, Jackie, for sharing that um, passionate and personal thing with us. I really appreciate that. Now I wanna open the floor for our, um, our fifth panelist, uh, Adnan Bayat. Um, Adnan, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
5: That's great. Thanks so much, Ryan. Okay.
1: Um, yeah, and again, you know, thank
5: you for the opportunity to share with you and, and everyone today. Uh, I have a very unenviable task of following all these incredible leaders and their powerful messages. Um, I was just about to you know, write my application for uh, London Health Sciences so I can <laughs> work for Jackie. <laughs> this sounds amazing. Um, I'm hoping now I can take a, a couple of minutes and pull some of the messages that have been shared already uh, together now. So I wanted to begin with my experience, uh, maybe a familiar one to many of those listening. 2020 felt like the heaviest, longest year. The racism, white supremacy, xenophobia, very familiar to people of color, were now on display for the world to see. Meanwhile, in my small corner of the world, working from home, feeling a deep heaviness from everything that's going on, but also feeling quite Isolated and vulnerable. At the time, working in a very white space, this experience was completely unrelatable for my colleagues. And uh, organizationally, concepts of health equity, anti-racism, diversity were misunderstood, misinterpreted, made out to be performance. For me, personally and professionally, it was a critical time to connect with other leaders of color. So many of our systems, institutions, organizations are set up like this. You have designers of the system, rule makers, law writers at the top, mostly white, mostly male, experience few barriers and uh, have the capacity and capital, social or otherwise, to remove those barriers. Conversely, those uh, working in the system represent a diverse cross-section of people in healthcare, many more women and racialized people. And this, also, this is also where you see those layers of intersectionality uh, of socioeconomic status, gender identity, sexual orientation, immigration status, language, religion, and so on. Now, putting this structure into the context of 2020, we saw some of the greatest corporate performances of all time in the age of social media, People around the world discovered that racism still existed. Started tuning, uh, pardon me, turning their social media profiles black, adding hashtags to their messages. Every CEO writing long letters on their organization's stance and commitment against racism, racism. There was lots of talk, but as time moved on, those that moved to action were far fewer. And so, had had any of this actually moved the needle? And so depending on who you are, your, to, uh, your answer to that question is gonna be very different. Systemic racism, white supremacy, xenophobia are all still very pervasive in our society. And we can, you know, of course, exchange the image on the, on the left with uh, indigenous land protectors, people experiencing homelessness and others. Health and healthcare intersect with all of our lives from beginning to end and with our institutions across society, uh, you know, we, we heard previously from, um, from the other speakers about, you know, how systemic racism impacts healthcare workers, how it impacts our patients, families, clients, customers. What about the public? How do we move forward and begin to purposefully redesign our systems? Part of the answer lies in the, in the following picture. So uh, this will probably be a familiar picture for many people. This is uh, Chidibera Ibe. He's a young man from Nigeria studying medicine in Ukraine. And is also a medical illustrator. So Chidibera's images went viral around the world because everyone stopped and realized that they had never before seen medical illustrations of black bodies. These images helped us to conceptualize how everything before had defaulted to a standard of whiteness. And this is the case for many systems, and certainly in in healthcare. Meaningful representation is senior leadership, executive suite, board tables. It means different perspectives, designing the system, and driving change from the top. And systemic change requires systemic solutions. There's not going to be one single solution that's going to fix it education, training, leadership development, anti-racist policies and practices, all of these things are just pieces of the puzzle. And none of this is new. This is a path that's been blazed by those that have been pushing for, you know, as Angela put it, good trouble for years. The persistence of those that came before, they've been making spaces in the name of equity. It's, and it's because of them that we're able to have this conversation here today. In addition to driving individual organizational change, what we've been seeing are grassroots developments pushing for progress. Conventional professional networks and associations, like the systems they represent, desperately lack representation. So in these situations, when people are excluded from a space, you eventually see groundswells of people organizing, collecting around solutions. New networks, communities, and groups are carving out spaces in professional settings. The group that I founded in, in 2020, BHLN, was one of those communities. It's an independent nonprofit created for seasoned and uh, emerging leaders who are working and studying in healthcare and identify as Black, Indigenous, or professionals of color. The mission of BHLN is to support healthcare leaders into those senior roles to be system designers and influencers of change. More simply, it's a community where there's mutual understanding and respect for each member's own experiences. Curated and protected spaces for frank and honest conversations where a keen understanding of systemic racism is really just the baseline for engagement. I wanna encourage everyone to find us on the web and on LinkedIn. where inclusive community welcomes everyone including allies, while always keeping BIPOC members needs central. Right now, we're also looking for partners and sponsors to grow our impact. So I want to uh, encourage you to reach out and join us.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Adnan, um, uh, for sharing that an experience I think a lot of us can, can, can relate to.